Dating is awkward. I'm not sure there's another way around this. It's sort of inherently uncomfortable to manufacture a connection with a stranger who you might kiss or never see again or spend the rest of your life with. It's pretty hard to nail that fine line of respectful intimacy with someone on your very first try. But why does dating online feel so much more awkward? We asked our listeners to share some of the craziest messages they'd received on a dating app. One of the worst messages I've ever received on a dating app was I will always remember this dirty poem I got. It said that does my The worst message I have ever gotten on a dating app. He just asked if I would Uh, so that was a no. <laughs> the messages we got weren't so crazy. They were just gross. So instead, I wanted to spark up some romance the old-fashioned way, by getting set up. This week, I asked my producers to play matchmaker. I said, help me find two experts. First, I was looking for somebody smart, funny, ambitious, with a great voice for radio, who could convince me that dating apps are bad. Enter Mr. Wright. I'm Eric Kleinenberg. I'm a professor of sociology and the director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. I also wanted to talk to somebody energetic, tech-savvy, the kind of person who appreciates long walks on the beach and who could make a really compelling case for dating apps. Like... I, I don't know, a, a sociologist for Bumble? My name is Dr. Jess Carboneau, and I am the sociologist for Bumble. Well, hallelujah. If only dating were this easy. I'm Derek Thompson, a writer for The Atlantic, and this is Crazy Genius. Today's topic, love in an age of algorithms. Are apps making it more efficient to find partners, or is online dating destroying romance? Bachelor number one, Eric Kleinenberg. Er, uh, not quite a bachelor. You are married. I am. Yeah, you have true. your children. True. Guilty. Did you <laughs> did, did you meet your your wife online? Oh man, uh, not at all. We we met in the Bay Area in 1997. We met in a totally analog way. And what was that? Uh, uh, friends of friends, uh, out at a uh, you know, actually out at a dance club in San Francisco. Oh uh, man, ten fifteen Folsom. We thank you uh, <laughs> for your service. And so, so this whole world of online dating was very mysterious to me. Kleinenberg is a sociologist who's written a lot of books. You might have heard of Modern Romance, the bestseller he wrote with comedian Aziz Ansari. And you also might have heard about the sexual misconduct allegations against Ansari himself. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Before Modern Romance, Kleinenberg wrote another book about being alone. It's called Going Solo. There are more people who are staying single mm -hmm. longer than ever before. There are more people living alone than ever before here in the U.S. and around the world. 
Uh, but in fact, living alone is very different from loneliness. Aloneness is not loneliness. Not in any way. And we make that mistake all the time. And in fact, we project our anxieties about loneliness onto single people and people who are living alone. Um, when in fact, what the data tell us and what my research tells us is that uh, people who live alone are actually far more likely to spend time with friends and with neighbors than, than people who are married. Single people are just like us. They're doing great. They're happy. And yet, they're also swiping on all the apps, looking for love. And here's the problem, Kleinenberg says. The most popular dating apps, like Tinder and Grindr, are really good at connecting us not to other people, but to our own phones. We get hooked on our devices, right, in, in all kinds of ways, but especially in online dating. These apps encourage users to get lost in the app. A 2016 study found that one-third of online daters said they've never met up with somebody that they initially found online. They get into this pattern of texting back and forth or adjusting their profile pictures or swiping left and right, and they don't actually put themselves into the world where they're going to meet another person. If you've ever used a dating app, you know most of your time isn't spent dating. They're really more like swiping apps or rejection apps or carrying on conversations for several days that don't go anywhere apps. One recent study of Tinder found that straight men match with half of 1% of the people they see online and send a message to just 7% of the people they match with. That means these guys might see thousands of faces for every person they talk to. And that leads to another problem, Kleinenberg says. These apps take thousands of complex human beings and reduce them to faces. You know, another element in the case against online dating, it really rewards hotness. I mean, so even though we know that hotness is not the thing that determines how good our relationship is going to be, hotness is driving people's decisions when they date online. That means that if you're hot uh, on on the internet, you're going to do much better than if you're not. So there is this kind of inequality that's built into the internet. Now, you could say that that's true in the world offline as well, and I, I think that's right. I was just going to say, to a certain extent, this does seem to simulate the experience of a lot of offline uh, dating as well. Totally agree. But oftentimes, we see beautiful things about a person in real life that we can't see on the screen. Mm -hmm. Conversations happen, and you realize, wow, like, She's really funny. Mm -hmm. She's really smart. I, I love the way that she, she does this thing. And that becomes the basis for attraction. W one of the, the great things that uh, Aziz and I pursued in, in the book was uh, asking people if they had ever fallen in love with someone uh, with whom they were not initially attracted. Mm -hmm. And if so, what was that experience like? And we got so many positive responses. And the stories were all about how the love and the kind of the passion, the interest became more intense and serious than anything they had ever experienced because once that click happened, mm -hmm. it felt profound. But Kleinenberg says online dating makes that click less likely to happen. When you have a bottomless supply of other potential dates, why invest so much time in just one stranger? Aziz and I got really worried about people not giving others a chance, you know, not going on second dates or third dates. We came up with a, a theory, which we call the 
the flow rider theory of acquired likability through repetition, which... Sorry, the flow rider theory of acquired likability through repetition. Yeah, but apologies to all of you who've studied this in your psychology classes (laughs) and are are, are familiar with with it. But it's basically saying like, um, people are are, are kind of like a flow rider song. Like the first time you meet them, you're like, I don't know. I've been there before. Well, there's not that much that's interesting here. Da, da, da. But like the second, the third, the fourth time, you're like, oh my God, Flo Rider, you've done it again. It's easier to get to dates three and four if we treat each date as a special occasion. But when you're dating six people at once from four different apps, who's got the time or money to do that? Nobody. Because we're meeting strangers... And because there's a high probability that there's not going to be a love connection, that that, that's not the right person, we don't really want to put too much effort into the first interaction. I mean, because we're all worried that the other person's going to be understating their weight by 30 pounds and their their age by, you know, something similar, um, we say, like, let's just meet for coffee. Uh, let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> I don't have a meeting until five. Right. You know, if we like each other a lot, we could maybe get a muffin. Kleinenberg calls it this problem of the boring-ass date. And boring-ass dates are a problem, but they're trivial compared to Kleinenberg's final argument. For women trying to date men, these sites can be pure hell. Swipeland comes with a brutal viciousness towards Mm. women, the horrible things that people say and send to them through their phones that are just so crass and disgusting uh, that we probably can't even put them on the podcasts. The FCC would allow it, but you don't want to have it on. It's just, there's there's this way in which we are awful to each other on the internet. And why is that? It's depersonalized. Uh, you know, dating and relationship building always happened within communities before we we knew other people the other person knew most of the time. Now people are connecting with total strangers. So who cares? I'll say anything I want to say. Right. There's no cost to cruelty. Zero. In, yeah. ca- in fact, it can be a little titillating. People get off on it. For sure they do. And yet it's fundamentally a part of the internet dating experience. This is why he says dating apps can be bad for people seeking romance. They lock us in Swipeland, a world that is even more cold and shallow and misogynistic than the offline alternative. Eric Kleinenberg is very persuasive. I mean, he's already in my top two. But everybody knows the rose ceremony doesn't take place at the 29-minute ad break. I think that the biggest misconception people have about online dating is that online dating is shallow and that individuals are making a choice exclusively by analyzing a photograph for a very brief period of time. Coming up, The Bachelorette. I have always been interested in why are we drawn to the people that we are drawn to. Before she became the in-house sociologist at a dating app, Jess Carboneau was just like Eric Kleinenberg, a straight person dating on campus. But a decade later, college romance had changed. 
This was in 2009. And I got on J-Date because my grandmother told me, like, a nice Jewish girl that I should meet a nice man. So I signed up for J-Date. And I was absolutely fascinated by what I was finding. I was so interested in how people were presenting themselves. And while I was seeking a man, I told my advisors that I wanted to study this empirically. Carboneau started a dissertation on the history of American romance. Meanwhile, she kept dating. And then while in the last year of writing my dissertation, I matched with the founder of Tinder, Sean Rad. Yep, the founder of Tinder, the most popular dating site in the world. So he asked me about what I was studying, and I told him, as a matter of fact, I'm studying online dating, facial attractiveness, and mate markets. And he said to me, (laughs) Jess, you seem really interesting. I I have a girlfriend, but I would really like for you to come to the office and meet me to talk about your research. And rather than going on a date, I went to the office and 30 minutes later had a job. Carboneau was Tinder's in-house sociologist for nearly four years. This year, she joined Bumble. You might know it as the app where straight women make the first move with men— But it also includes same-sex dating. Men and women, and women and women, and men and men, and people who don't identify with the binary, however you choose to identify. It's hard to make that first move. Carboneau's defense of online dating starts with a bit of history. Decades ago, straight couples were most likely to meet through family connections. My father was introduced to my mother by her twin sister because my father and my aunt did business together. Seventy years ago, half of all straight couples met through family, church, or high school. But between 1940 and 2000, the share of straight couples meeting through family or church fell by nearly 50 percent. They became more likely to meet in random places, like bars. Fundamentally, I think that online dating has become the number one way people meet because these existing social institutions, such as family and friends, have become something that we've become more geographically distant from. I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. I have spent my adulthood mainly in Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles. My Aunt Susan does not live down the street from me and can't tell me that her podiatrist son just moved back to town. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen anymore. Technology has enabled individuals to find romantic partners because the traditional institutions that we once relied upon to find partners no longer exist or are less vibrant. And don't forget, church and family were only the top wellsprings for romance if you were straight. So online dating took off faster in the gay community. As straight people became less likely to meet through family and church, they followed a path blazed by gay couples. Now, maybe meeting up with strangers doesn't sound like your idea of romance, but Carboneau sees a silver lining. Well, I think online dating has changed modern romance for the better by exposing individuals to people whom they otherwise would never have met, given that people were so heavily monitored by their parents and what happened in their parlors to people meeting in their neighborhoods. You were very limited in the choice set of individuals who you had available to you. For a long time, one of the most common critiques of online dating was that users filtered for characteristics like race, leading to more homogenous relationships. But the opposite might be happening. The latest research on couples who met online found that these apps led to more interracial relationships. Well, I read the paper regarding interracial marriage, and I thought it was very interesting. I think it's wonderful that online dating exposes people to people who are very different from themselves. And I think, obviously, America became America as the result of interreligious marriage. Uh, And I think that our country became far more cohesive as a result of that. We became united on the basis of having interreligious marriage. I think that it didn't take into account certain things that I, as a scholar, would really be curious about, such as the role of filtering and how selective people are, for example— 
in sites like OkCupid and Match, you're able to filter what you're looking for in terms of race and ethnicity. That seems fair. It's not clear yet whether dating apps are just reflecting our biases or actually helping us to overcome them. A lot of critics say that the sheer size of the online dating pool overwhelms us, makes us incapable of settling down. In psychology, this is sometimes known as the paradox of choice. So the paradox of choice is the idea that individuals, when presented with many choices, are theoretically paralyzed because having too many choices is overwhelming and they feel as though having a more limited number of choices makes their decision easier. It's a popular theory, but the landmark study on this subject involved jam. Is trying to find a life partner really like shopping for brambleberry jam? The online daters with whom I spoke said to me that once they found somebody, they were willing to commit to them because they had actually had a larger conception and understanding of the market. Pancake lovers might be happier with just a few strawberry jams in their grocery store. But when it comes to finding a partner for life... We want choice. We want to have a variety of experiences prior to committing a partner. The vast majority of Americans have multiple partners prior to marriage, given that the median age of marriage for men in the United States, the last time I looked, was almost 29. For women, it was almost 28. So I think that it certainly makes sense that you're not going to have one jar of jam or one partner for life among men and women who are getting married. But here's a place where Carboneau and Kleinenberg are in total agreement. Straight men can be terrible to women on the internet. Bumble saw that as a problem their app could solve. Bumble changes the idea that men can act in a rude and disrespectful manner, not only through our mechanism by which women make the first move and therefore set the tone for the conversation, but also through our own policies. We have a zero-tolerance policy for men acting in a rude manner, and we empower our users to report them, and then we deal with them with absolutely zero tolerance. And what does so that I mean, zero tolerance? You just we kick, kick them, them off, off the, app? the app? We kick them off the app so that they can never act this way again, and hopefully that serves as a lesson to them to not do it in their in-person interactions. By policing the behavior of men, dating apps are, again, doing work once reserved for the nuclear family. In the early 1900s, it was customary for parents to chaperone dates. They would watch young couples meet and flirt in the parlor over tea. But a new invention, cars, allowed couples to escape these living room observatories. Automobile technology seemed so scary, we wrote songs about how it was destroying romance. Heck, Irving Berlin composed a song called Keep Away from the Fella Who Owns an Automobile. Of course, by the 1950s, cars weren't scary they were an integral part of teenage life. It would seem that every time technology changes the way we date, society kind of freaks out. But maybe the problem isn't really about dating technology. Maybe it's more about the assumptions we make around relationships. Is it possible that American romance is hard because our expectations for romance are just impossible to uphold? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Well, yeah. We're searching for people who have an impossible combination of traits. Spiritual, intellectual, social, as well as sexual 
all in all. And we expect those things to be revealed to us on first meeting, you know, before the second cup of coffee. And that is absolutely, completely and utterly unreasonable and also why I think Americans are so much more lonely and unhappy. I think we'll see online dating is just about as threatening as a car. What might feel like a stilted and potentially dangerous way to meet people today will eventually just be the boring norm. So maybe let's chill about online dating. If you need to freak out about something, let's all regroup in 20 years and sing a new song of moral panic. Keep away from the fella who owns an interplanetary rocket ship. Crazy Genius was produced by Krista Ripple, Catherine Wells, Kasia Mihailovich, and Kevin Townsend. All Ks. Wow. With help, lots of help, from Abdella Fayad. David Herman is our wonderful engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special, special, special thanks to Matt Thompson. And an even more special thanks to everyone who called into our hotline and left us tales of your online dating woes. I'm Derek Thompson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.